In March 1938, Leo Bretholtz was a young Jewish man living in Vienna. He was 17, the eldest of three siblings. One day, he was sitting in his apartment when he heard a bustling crowd outside of his window. Naturally curious, Leo headed outside and was caught in a river of people flooding the streets. He was in the middle of a military parade. The new dictator, returning to his native land for the first time in 24 years. Adolf Hitler had triumphantly arrived in Vienna, having just annexed all of Austria. This was the Anschluss, the beginning of Germany's expansion into Europe. Leo stood dumbfounded, surrounded by neighbors screaming with excitement. The Austrians said they were the first victims, but don't believe that because I remember them receiving the Germans with flowers and church bells all over the place. As Hitler's car slowly passed Leo, tears of joy streaked down the faces of his fellow onlookers. And then Hitler was gone. In his wake came a surge of new discriminatory laws against Jews. Then the ghettos, the deportations, and the camps. All spread throughout Germany's conquests, all connected by some of the world's most sophisticated rail networks. This is Covering Their Tracks, the extraordinary story of a global corporation's denial of its history and how storytelling can be used to confront the past and achieve justice. I'm Matthew Slutsky. This is Episode 2, Convoy Number 42. Last episode, we talked about the power of stories, how they might serve practical, social, and political ends. Sometimes these stories are true, sometimes they're false, and sometimes they're both. We've already heard the one the French National Railway, the SNCF, created about its heroic role in the French Resistance, made into an acclaimed movie, La Bataille du Rai. Then we heard a competing tale, one of the SNCF's deadly efficiency, of francs paid per Jewish head transported from French ghettos to Auschwitz. It's that story that people like Kurt Schechter, Harriet Taman, and Rafi Prober had tried to tell before courts and Congress in order to secure some kind of justice for the survivors. This episode, we're gonna focus on a more personal story, one you'll need to know in order to understand the broader SNCF narratives and counter-narratives. It's the story of Leo Bretholtz, that teenager who watched Hitler roll through Vienna. And so we return to that March day in Vienna in 1938. Overnight, Jewish males were being arrested. We were not allowed to walk on the sidewalk. We had to walk in the gutter. We couldn't shop in the stores that we were used to shop. We couldn't go to our schools. Leo's non-Jewish friends abandoned him. Swastikas on huge banners swayed from rooftops. It was clear, at least to Leo's mother, Dora, that this was the beginning of annihilation. She told him, get out now. My youngest sister, Ten, was then at the hospital. She had been taken to the hospital a few days earlier with scarlet fever. There was no way for me to say goodbye to her, being near her and hug her. My mother and I, and my middle sister, we stood in the courtyard of the hospital, looking at a mezzanine window, and there was my little sister, 10 years old, 
brown hair, brown eyes, curly hair. She looked at that moment to me like the last angel on earth. But there she was, a blackboard in her left hand and a piece of chalk in her right. And I motioned to her in sign language, I will be leaving because that was discussed at home for many weeks. And she wrote on the blackboard, see you soon again. When we said goodbye in 1938, see you soon again, we really meant it. We meant it because this cannot last forever. How long can this last? This was the 20th century. The nation of poets and thinkers, philosophers, the nation of Brahms and Beethoven and Bach. This was no backward society. So naturally, we said, see you soon again. And then we walked home on a raining October evening. And I said goodbye to my mother and my other sister. And then her last words were, never forget who you are. For thousands of years, Jews have existed as a community in exile. In Vienna in the 20th century, Austrian Jews began preparing for a fate that their ancestors knew all too well, leaving your life behind because your neighbors want you dead. I left Vienna and crossed into Luxembourg through a river. On an average Viennese day, the River Sauer was a small river, one you could wade across. Getting into Luxembourg seemed pretty straightforward. The plan was for a man called Mr. Becker to shepherd Leo across the border. You know what I call him? I call him a smuggler. Sounds more adventurous. Well, he took me to the river, says, I'll be on the other side, cruising back and forth with my lights blinking on and off so that you know it's my car. And then he said to me, do you know how to swim? He asked me, I said, yes. But then it rained for five days and nights before the planned crossing. The Sauer was a torrent, a hundred feet across and spilling over its banks. And Leo had dressed more for Luxembourg than for a flood. I was fully closed, you know what I wore? Knickerbockers. I crossed that border in style, you see. Knickerbockers and a blue gabardine coat. Like so many who had been through incredible trauma, Leo is capable of looking back with humor. But Edie Norton, his daughter reminds us how serious an endeavor this was. He had some prayer books and some other things that were you know, religious items. So he sort of appealed to God, God, please help me, please protect me. I'm holding your holy items. Leo stepped into the water. He would later describe the river sour swirling around him, rushing through him, taking his breath away. He's gasping for air, gulping mouthfuls of water. It's a nightmare. In this moment, he thought about his mother, how she'd be torn apart if she knew his situation. Then he was on the other side. The current had delivered him out of German territory and into Luxembourg. A few days later, Leo joined five other escapees crammed like sardines in the back seat of Becker's car. They had to cross another border, this time into Belgium. They drove into Brussels in the early hours of November 10th, 1938. It was dark 
and cold. And then they saw something. We saw in the distance strange uh, colorations and shadings and something we had never seen before and we didn't know what to make of it. They kept driving. The next morning, seemingly safe in Belgium, they discovered the meaning of those lights. Thousands of synagogues, orphanages, and hospitals had been set on fire across Germany and Austria. We now call that night Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. But what Leo remembered was the strange glow of flames reaching up into the darkness. When Leo first started his journey, he went to Luxembourg because Luxembourg was neutral. Then Mr. Becker brought him to Belgium because Belgium was neutral. But the Nazis ignored all laws of neutrality. And so Belgium wasn't the safe haven Leo anticipated. Desperate to have treatment for a hernia, he sought medical attention. Leo lay in his hospital room, awaiting surgery for six weeks. As more time passed, the situation beyond the hospital doors grew even more dire. But Leo had to stay. The doctor told me, you're young, you're 19, you don't want to run around with this and be handicapped. But the operation never took place. Two bombs fell into the hospital ground, knocking out windows, incendiary bombs. The civil defense appeared with their white helmets, instructing us, those of you who can walk under your own power, get your clothes, get dressed, come to the office, pick up your document, and we will tell you how to get home under the bombardment. We will instruct you. Germany had attacked, and those of us who had come from that country that had just attacked are considered enemy aliens. Leo Bretholtz had stayed just ahead of the Nazis for years, from Austria to Luxembourg, then to Belgium and on to Switzerland, which is where his luck ran out. He was caught and sent to France. In 1942, Leo was trapped in an internment camp in Drancy, a Paris suburb. He would later call Drancy the waiting room for Auschwitz, a deportation camp on the outskirts of the cultural capital of the world. Drancy was concrete, and on this concrete, straw. Men, women, children together. Minimum toilet facilities. Minimal food distribution. Watchtowers. Barbed wire. That's where we were issued the Jewish Star. We saw utter despair, and it wasn't until I saw a newborn baby being shot like a clay pigeon, and the mother being killed too, but she threw herself into the path. That I spoke to my friend Manfred Silberwasser, and I said, Manfred, if this can happen in Drancy, what can we expect where we're going to? It was here, in Drancy, that Leo was forced onto convoy number 42, an SNCF cattle car ready to transport Jews to Auschwitz. Thursday the 5th, in the morning, they notified us that we will be leaving. And we were taken to the train and put into the trains in the evening at 50 per cattle car. Old and young and from all professions, from all walks of life, from all uh, economic strata, from every segment of the Jewish population. Children alone, crippled people, people on stretchers, 
a microcosm of humanity abandoned by the world. A 21-year-old Leo boarded a train bound for Auschwitz, where over a million people were murdered over the course of the war. Men, women, the elderly, children. More people than the populations of Atlanta and Miami combined. Just gone. But still in Drancy, Leo could only imagine what was to come. Of course, in that particular confinement, you have a whole gamut of emotions running their course. Resignation, despair, openly expressed, a lot of crying, a lot of moaning, some praying, all privacy of a human being had been taken away. There's no more privacy. How can you, with everybody relieving themselves in that one bucket, men, women, and children, because you had to, you had reached a common denominator of dehumanization, and people were still thinking that there was something of humaneness ahead of them. And this is why people were trying to talk us out of running away. Look what can happen to us. If they find you escape, they will kill us all. And our answer at this point was, so what do you think awaits us anyway? As he had done multiple times since leaving Vienna, Leo chose to escape. There was this woman on crutches in that, pointing her crutch at me and, and telling me, que Dieu vous garde, let God keep You must go, you must do what you want to do. Don't let anybody talk to you about Perhaps it will succeed, and then we can tell something about it. Leo and a friend began to set their plan into action. There was only one way of doing it. Both windows had bars, straight bars. The only way that we could possibly do that is by trying to twist them or to bend them forcefully. We took our sweaters and we dunked them in human waste, made them wet, to create a pencil cloth. A wet cloth can be wrung and wrung and wrung, and it twists and twists until the moisture has stripped out entirely until it's dry. That sort of principle is applied in a tourniquet style when you use it on an arm. We use that as a tourniquet. So if you figure there are two bars, you twist that sweater around the bars, and then you go twisting, twisting, twisting until you can rehelp each other. And we tried that several times. There was no give yet. There was no give yet. But we hoped that something will happen. And then we moved in the side and see maybe it gets loose a little bit. This was our getaway. This was life. But here we were going to certain death, which now we know at that time we only speculated. But I'm glad we did speculate. Finally, we saw that glimmer of hope where the bars in the frame started to move ever so lightly. We worked for a while, and we saw them ever so slightly bend inward. Then we used our hands to move them apart again, so that they should start loosening. Those bars had moved apart enough where we could see our way squeezing through Finally, under the cover of the darkness, climb out of that cattle car. 
I was the first one to step out. I dropped down, held on to that bar, and then reached my way to the back of that cattle car, to the coupling. And my friend came next. At that very moment, the train went into a slight curve and somewhat slowed down. My friend was the first to jump, and I jumped right after him. At that very moment, we heard whistles and shots fired. The train came to a screeching halt, and we heard more shots fired and voices. And let's look for, let's search, run up and down. We were lying there in that ravine, in that wet, tall grass, holding our breath in a moment that seemed like hours. But it was just a few minutes. And it wasn't until we heard train being set into motion again that we let our breath out. For the first time in so many weeks, we were, if not entirely free, at least away from the train that was taking us to its certain death. When the woman with the crutch on that train told Leo... Go live and tell this story. She was echoing what Leo's own mother had told him the last time he saw her in Vienna. Never forget who you are. Never forget. Storytelling is central to our identities and to our collective memories. Leo had picked up on the essential link between storytelling and remembering. The very Jewish link between these two things at a very young age. Leo's father, Max, died when Leo was a teenager. Max was a prominent actor in the Yiddish theater. These were classic plays, and I was privy to them. My mother took me to watch my father. Like his father, Leo would eventually become a masterful storyteller, but not immediately. After seven years on the run, Seven years of surviving the Holocaust, Leo arrived in America and settled in Baltimore, Maryland. He had a story to tell, but its horrors were still right there. How do you say them out loud to anyone? When we came here, there was no psychologist. There was no social worker. Today, when you have a stress syndrome after an event, a plane crash a big fire somewhere, a shooting in the schools. Immediately, the psychologist or the psychiatrist, the counselors, they are immediately there to, to tell you what to do, to keep you, to make it easier for you to cope. But we didn't have that. Plus, he had other more immediate concerns. The first thing that I had to worry about coming to America, get a job and make a living. And that's what he did. He opened a bookstore and he started a family. It was at his bookstore that Leo met a regular customer who would help him begin to process his past. He was running a bookstore in Baltimore, and I would go in and just look for something to read, but also found myself kibitzing with him a lot. I didn't know any of his background, 
But here and there, the Holocaust would come up. He recommended a few things to me. I had some interest in it. I had some family background losses like many others. That's Michael Olesker, former journalist for the Baltimore Sun. It wasn't until, I would say, about five years later that we have a a Holocaust memorial here in Baltimore, downtown Baltimore, and once a year they have a, a service. And I went down to be there and also to write a a newspaper column about it. I was writing for the Baltimore Sun at that point. And Leo was there. And we knew each other pretty well by that time. He quietly removed from his shirt pocket a yellow Jewish star and very quietly said to me, I wore this during the war. And that was the start of us really talking about what he had been through. Because for all that time, he had never really said anything. It was too painful. And then anytime I would go into the bookstore, I kept saying to him, Leo, this is a book. And he would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Olesker persisted, reminding Leo of the important history he was carrying with him. I said again, you know, Leo, this is a book. And he says, I tell you what, He says, if you will write it, I will tell it. Olesker sent Leo a list of 75 questions to get him started. What was it like in the train? What were people saying? What were people doing? What was it like for you? You're a a teenage kid. How were they dressed? What was the smell? Tell me about some of the people. And so he would call me every few days and he would say, Michael, I'm up to question 12. Great. A few days later, Michael, I'm up to 37. Great, Leo, keep working. When I got it back after about a month and I read it, I thought, oh my God. Oh my God. Leo's answers would eventually become the basis for his memoir, Leap Into Darkness. In it, Leo, of course, talks about his harrowing years moving through different countries, just trying to stay alive. But if you recall, Leo embarked on the journey alone. He had a mother and sister he left behind in Austria. What happened to them? His daughter, Edie, recalls the day he received a notice that would finally answer these questions. It's just dated 26 October 1962. There's one for each of them. And it says we are stating that Frau Dora Bredholtz and has her birth date, where she lived. And it says on the 4th of September, 1942, she was deported to Izbica, and it's got an official seal on it. And then there's one for each of his sisters. Same thing, same date, with their birth dates, saying on the 4th of September, 1942, Edith Bredholtz was deported to Izbica, and then Henriette Bredholtz. Izbica was a ghetto in occupied Poland. From there, Jews were sent to the Belzec and Sobibor extermination camps. I think just receiving this word, it was devastating, but he didn't have to worry anymore. Like, I think this is when my mother said, you really need to talk about your story. You can't keep this inside. Leo's mother and sister were gone. There's something about knowing how a story ends that brings peace and is freeing. Knowing the end of his family's story helped Leo begin to tell his own 
to more people. He started by speaking to high schools and community colleges around the Baltimore neighborhood where he lived. Tonight, we are here to listen to a presentation by a Holocaust survivor. Can you all hear me? Yes. Thank you, Tom, for that gracious introduction. I really have to live up to something now, and I try to do my best. With his memoir, Leo now had a written narrative of what had happened to him. It allowed him to commit his life to remembering through storytelling. Here he is in another interview. If we do not remember them, then we kill them a second time. If you lose memory, and if you have no memories or remembrance, that means you kill the memory and you kill everything. And this is what Hitler wanted, for us to be forgotten, to be annihilated. And if we do not remember and connect with that past, then we give Hitler a victory posthumously. It's burdensome. It's never easy as I'm talking to you. It's emotional. But I have a choice. I can say yes, I can say no, but my mother and sisters had no choice. They were taken against their will to be murdered. Can you imagine how this was organized? The murder of people organized in a bureaucratic fashion. The 20th century. Have to add the land of poets and thinkers, Germany, and helped by the French naturally. Voltaire, Victor Hugo, Emile Zola, the Declaration of Human Rights, that's all French. Where did, where, where did their history go at that moment? Oh, by the way, sir. And today I'm telling it only, it's never easy to talk about. It. I'm telling it only so that you can take that into the future. Maybe it will never happen again, but who knows what's what's going on. We see it today, too. Leo had found some semblance of peace until the train he thought he'd left behind rolled right into his life again, into the one place in his adult life where he had found safety, Maryland. Winning this contract would be a major coup for Keyless. The proposed 16-mile Purple Line comes with a 35-year contract worth more than $6 billion. The proposed rail line called the Purple Line will run right through here to this Silver Springs stop on its path through the Maryland suburbs. But 70-year-old actions are affecting today's decisions, and it's anything but business as usual. Keolis? That's an American subsidiary of the SNCF. As a subsidiary, Keolis could say, well, we're not the SNCF. And the SNCF could say, well, we're not the French government. And the French government could say, well, the Nazis did it. We were coerced into facilitating those deportations. Leo was, by then, an old man living a safe and quiet life in Baltimore. However, He was about to become the central figure in an international conflict about justice, transparency, and ultimately, reparations. His story, which started by taking a bold leap from the SNCF convoy number 42, bound for Auschwitz, was far from over. That continues next time on Covering Their Tracks. 
Covering Their Tracks was hosted, reported, and researched by me, Matthew Slutsky. The series was written and produced by Courtney Hazlett, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, Eric Meyerson, Megan Lubin, and Chris Gonzalez. Editing, engineering, and mixing by Eric Meyerson, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, and Quinn Waller. Our theme song, Tall Grass, was composed and performed by Robert Berger. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions. Thank you to Blue Chalk Media, including Greg Moyer, Pam Hewling, Julianne Sato-Parker, Amy Polanski, and Mariko Fujinaka. Head to our show notes for more information about tablet podcasts or visit tabletmag.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening.